This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Book Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 300, and we're recording. On- <laughs> yes, and we're recording on September 28th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. So that's like five years. Yeah, yeah, that's bananas. <laughs> we made it to 300, Amanda. We're I still can't. here. How are there so many different kinds of books <laughs> that we have done five years of the show? It's a good question. I maybe what I'll do for this year is run because I we have a, a list of all the titles basically going back yeah. forever. Maybe uh-huh. I'll do a big merge and like figure out the repeat over the mm-hmm. course of five years because I think I think it will be. Especially since we instituted the rule, capital mm-hmm. T, capital R, uh, it'll <laughs> not be too high. And I know our, our listener, Stephanie, has uh, tracked a lot of that stuff, too. So the data mm. exists. It but does. yeah, five years worth of minimum 14 books per show. And we used to do more. That's a lot of books. Okay, so 300. And for the first, yeah, we did used to do. So let's just do, um, I have my calculator. 300 yes. by 14. We've recommended at least 4,200 books on this show. (laughs) So if you are a person who reads a book a week, 52, it would take you 80 years to read every book that we have recommended on this show. Wow. (laughs) That's bananas. That's a lot of books. Anyway, so welcome to episode 300. We're feeling very retrospective, and we are going to be doing our Ask Us Anything episode for this one. We got tons of questions, like four or five pages worth, so we'll probably have to do more than one episode to get to all of them, which we are happy to do because it gives our brains a break from recommending books. Um, But before we get into it, we have a couple of pieces of feedback. The first one is from Sophie, who says, I wasn't going to write in because the person looking for World War I fiction said nothing about magic, but I got so excited by you recommending Will Darling that I had to write in and mention K.J. Charles' other amazing World War I novel, Spectred Isle. Essentially, in this universe, a war beneath the war was happening at the same time as World War I between arcanists from all sides of the war. Um, okay, and then April says, I have suggestions for Eric for books with legends or lore of the fantasy world woven into the narrative. I think almost anything by Patricia A. McKillop would work. I recommend starting with The Bards of Bone Plain, which is a standalone with a past-present narrative where the legends and history in the present part is complicated by what actually happens or happened in the past portion. Or the Riddlemaster trilogy, which is huge there and back again story where the hero ends up becoming part of or reenacting the realities of the lore of the world that they just learned about in school. Well, that's a uh, that is on the nose. <laughs> that is on the nose. I'm going to co-sign all of what oh, that person just said. Yes. Nice. Okay. So we are going to get started with our questions. We have our first set of questions from Radhika. And the first one is, what is a day of work like for you at Book Riot? Is it mostly just reading fun books? In which case, <laughs> I am so jealous. No, I, it's not. <laughs> I love that people still think that's true. I know. I know. Yeah. You want to go first? Sure. It's It's not. Having (laughs) worked in publishing for over a decade now, I can tell you, actually, it's going to be almost two, which is bananas. I can tell you that no job in books 
is reading books. Actually, yeah. I take it back. Liberty Hardy is the only person who has she's that made job. A, she has made a career out of that. Yeah, she's the only one. <laughs> but literally no one else has that job, including us. We do not have this job. I So my job, my, my technical title is manager of editorial operations currently. And mm-hmm. what that means is I spend like 75% of my day in spreadsheets or in the WordPress backend, like making sure that everything gets to where it needs to go and works the way it's supposed to work and like coordinating between our ad sales team and the contributors and the editorial team and the development team. And just like it's super touching lots of different things all over the place. So, yeah. In my head, Jen is like the steel beams of the book rate building (laughs) to to make an architect. I was just talking about earthquake proof architecture with my kid this morning because he wants to be an architect. And so this is what my brain is thinking about. But that's what operations is like. That's really lovely. Drape the content on the structures that Jen makes every day. And Amanda, you spend a lot of time in spreadsheets. I do. Um, So a day of work for me is also not reading any at all. Maybe my lunch break. Yeah. So my title is Executive Director of Demand Generation, um, which means that my actual job is making the, the various income generating portions of the company bigger and more profitable and coming up with new income streams. Um, and making sure that what we're making in every aspect of the company, from the site to the podcast to TBR to everything, um, is something that people want and will use. <laughs> so that's what I do all day. It's a lot of like marketing adjacent stuff. It's all, And since I'm an executive director, I am on the executive team, which is the head person from every department of the company, plus Jeff and Clint, who are the CEO and COO. And that's a lot of hours making the company. The job of the executive team is to make Book Riot. So we do all of that making policy and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a lot of conference calls and it's a lot of spreadsheets and it's a lot of like display ad noodling and experiments and it really has nothing to do with books at all like I could take this skill set and transfer it to really any anything which is nice (laughs) if we ever go belly up which we won't but you know that's what my day is like I don't read until my day is over same before we go on to the next question should we do a sponsor break sure today's episode is brought to you by gallery books So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. 
So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. I totally forgot about sponsor because <laughs> I didn't put it in the agenda. So my brain did not remember that they exist. Okay. Our next question is, how did you end up at Book Riot? And did you always know that you wanted to work in the book world? How did you get here, Jen? How did I get here? So I did not always know I wanted to work in books. I thought I was going to be a combination of Margaret Mead and Indiana Jones. Like I wanted to be like a historian slash anthropologist and surround myself with dusty books and go off into different parts of the world and learn all about other people and other cultures. And I went to school and I got a history degree and then I graduated and I was like, nobody wants to hire me and I don't Mm -hmm. want to go to grad school. What am I going to do? So I started working at Borders. R.I.P. Borders, and (laughs) then begged a local indie to hire me away from Borders because that was not actually a fun job. (laughs) And then it all just sort of happened after that. So I got I I jumped around from indie bookstore to indie bookstore. And then uh, Rebecca and I had known each other for a good long time. And Book Riot was thinking about doing an event and I had been running bookstore events. So she was like, do you want to help us figure this out? And then it turned into a full time job. And now, like, six years later, here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not always know that I wanted to work in the book world. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I did the very, like, I want to be president. I want to be a lawyer. Mm. I want to, you know, all that kind of stuff. I also have a history degree yeah. that I graduated right into the belly of the recession and mm. could not find a job in that field. Didn't want to teach. Didn't want to go to grad school. Uh, and then I got pregnant with twins. <laughs> So, and I was married at the time, um, so I stayed home with them for as long as I could stand it, which was eight weeks. And we were too poor for, like, full-time childcare or anything like that, so I got a part-time job at an indie bookstore in my town. And I also started a book blog called Dead White Guys, RIP Dead White Guys, which was about classical literature in my, like, you know, kind of satirical, snarky perspective, uh, which was a thing that wasn't on the internet. So mm. I found a hole and I filled it. Um, and that's how I met Jeff. He was a commenter. <laughs> he was an English professor at the time. And he got very English professory in my comments about a post I did about um, some Homeric. I think it was the Odyssey. And that's how I met Jeff. Um, and I met Rebecca because I like Googled other book bloggers in Richmond because I wanted to meet some. And hers was the only <laughs> the only other one. And so I emailed her like with her contact me form yes. on her blog and was like, hi, I promise I'm not creepy. But like, would you like to have lunch? So we went to Panera and that's how we met. 
and she knew Jeff already. And so when Jeff and Clint decided to start Book Riot, they approached Rebecca to be their first employee, and they approached me to be in the first stable of writers. So there were 10 original contributors, and I was one of them. And then I eventually got hired to do the nighttime and weekend social media, and then the daytime social media. And then eventually I was the managing editor. And then as the site has grown, my role has also grown. You could say that I am unqualified because I don't have a marketing degree or, <laughs> or anything. Like I mean, I have a history degree, but I've gotten, you know, kind of like side cl- taken classes and courses and stuff along the way. It's just been a really big learning experience. It's on um, the job learning. That's real. 100%. It, I mean, I feel like that's pretty typical startup yeah. experience. Um, but yeah, that's how I ended up here. Okay. Now we have questions for each of us individually. Jen, did you always want to co-edit an anthology? And are there any more projects like that in the pipeline? And what is so, your anthology? That's a me question because not Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, Swordstone Table, which is Arthurian retellings, but queered and gender bent and diversified and all kinds of good stuff. And I co-edited it with Swapna Krishna and we got a lot of really great writers to write for us. And it is out now and you can pick it up. If you like Arthuriana, you will like it. If you don't know what that is, you might still like it. It's short stories. Mm-hmm. They're sci-fi, fantasy, historical. There's contemporary. It's all the things. Uh, so yeah, did I always want to co-edit an anthology? No. I wanted people to tell me these stories. And I was like, where are these stories? I want people to tell them and write them. And I couldn't, they weren't being published at the time when I was looking around for them. And I was like, well, we know a lot of people. Maybe somebody will write them for us. So I guess if you look at it that way, yes, I always want people to tell me the stories that I want to hear. But that doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. And it's only at this point in my career that I have the connections and the wherewithal and knowledge to, like, make it happen, which is pretty awesome. And, yeah, I definitely am going to do more. I cannot speak about anything (laughs) at this moment. (laughs) But there are secret things in the offing that I hope to be able to talk about at some point soon. I'm making Mr. Burns fingers. Yes. (laughs) I'm excited about it. Um, Okay. The next question is for me, and it says, this might be too personal, but how did you know you were ready to have kids, and did any books help you make the decision? Okay, that's not too personal. It's fine. I did not know that I was ready to have kids. I did not do it on purpose. (laughs) Um, I had been married for four years, I think, when I got pregnant, and so it wasn't really a, like, I'm ready to have kids, so I'm going to go out and do it. It was more of a, like, well, this is happening. Do I want it to actually happen? So we had the, do we want to get an abortion conversation? Are we actually ready for this? We had to make a decision fairly quickly because the abortion laws in Virginia at that time, 10 years ago, were much stricter than they are now. So I had, like, a time limit. And when we found out it was twins, the I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Enneagram, but the Enneagram <laughs> ate part of my brain, like, activated and was like, that sounds like a fun project. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I had, I don't, I don't know if you've all seen this meme, but there's a meme, I think it's a TikTok of a woman finding out that she's having twins and then, like, taking her shirt off and banging her chest and being like, let's go, I ain't no mm, slang term uh, for coward. And that's exactly how I felt when I found out that I was having <laughs> So I don't think that ready is the right question so much as like enthusiastic about what it was going to look like. I had no readiness <laughs> other than like, you know, I mean, I didn't have a job. I did, had a part-time job at an independent bookstore. I was freelance writing on the side. My husband had a good job that he lost when I was seven months pregnant. So that was fun. We lost our health insurance. It was a total nightmare. But no, there were no books that helped me make the decision. It was really just a, can we handle what this is probably going to be? And do we have the money? And even that was like, well, no, but we'll figure it out. You know, right. 
And we did. We figured it out by getting divorced. That's what we did. <laughs> and it's great now. And now they are 10 and have never known anything but two houses and are super happy and great. So I don't know if that answered your question. I, I feel like you were like kind of looking for books to help you decide. And I really don't think there are any. I mean, there are like, you can read books about pregnancy and childbirth mm-hmm. to get an idea of what that process is like. And if you physically care to go through it. There are also like foster parenting books that I've recommended on the show before, if that's an option that you would be more interested in. But the, you know, day to day of having a a human you have to care for, I don't know that a book can really help you. But go hang out with some kids and see how you feel about it. I think it would be more, yeah. I'm sure somebody you know would let you borrow their child. 100%. In exchange for free babysitting. (laughs) Yeah. I have a spare, so if you want... They look alike, I'll never know. Um, Okay, our next question is from Amanda, who says, what is the origin story of the podcast? I've been listening for two to three years and have been curious to know how the show started, how it's changed, what your backgrounds are, etc. And uh, the second part of our question are, what are some of the more memorable moments and or questions of the podcast? What is our origin story, Jen? I have to think back on this. (laughs) Yeah, so you... You were the original get booker, mm-hmm. booker. I can't say that. That's not a word. <laughs> uh, and then, and you did an, a bunch of guest hosts, right? Mm-hmm. I think, if I recall correctly, the Book Riot podcast was our only podcast at that point. Or maybe we had all the books too. Maybe we had all the books. I don't remember. Yeah, we only yeah. had one or two. Yeah. And the Book Riot podcast had been doing like, write in and we will recommend you a book mm-hmm. and i think somebody must have thought like hey this would be a good show mm-hmm. oh no you know what we had um dear book nerd oh yeah which was a podcast with rita mead who is a wonderful public librarian in brooklyn uh, go say hi to her not in a creepy way yeah so we had this like hole in our stable of podcasts for write-in shows for people mm-hmm. to like talk to us and communicate with us and jeff and rebecca on the book Riot show couldn't handle the volume of requests for book recommendations they got And then, you know, I was like, I kind of miss this part of being an indie bookseller. I was an Mm -hmm. indie bookseller for for a while until I had my kids. And like, I miss on the fly coming up with I read this book and loved it help, you know, and in in an indie bookstore, you're even more constrained because it's just what's on the shelves that you you have to figure out something to give this person with just what's in front of you, which is even harder than what we do on the show, which is, of course, every book that's ever been published ever (laughs) in time. (laughs) Um, So I I volunteered to like make that show happen. And like Jen said, at first, we envisioned it as like, we'll pick a theme every week, and we'll have an expert guest come on. And I did that for a few episodes, and it got too unwieldy. And it was like too much work having to wrangle guests and their technical stuff and like making Mm. sure they were set up to record and all that. It was just annoying. And so we changed it. Um, and when we were talking about who should be my permanent co-host, uh, Jen was the obvious choice. She's also a long-term indie bookseller who we had stolen from, from an indie <laughs> bookstore. And I just sort of assumed she would like an opportunity to to use some of those skills. I was I was literally sitting at my desk, heard <laughs> that y'all were changing, and I was like, put me in, coach, pick me, pick me. Like, can I I was like, can I volunteer? Is it weird if I volunteer? Like, I really want to do this. <laughs> because I too to. <laughs> was missing that challenge it's like a it's like a weird jigsaw puzzle you're like okay what do I know about this person what have you told me what is available what have I read what do I know about like how do I fit all this together and also like we said at the top of the show we don't really do much with actual books during the day we're right. we're running a company we're not necessarily talking about literature or books or whatever in our in our working hours so this kind of this is the last place really except for my Instagram account sometimes where I can talk about actual books and so yeah, yeah. it's really valuable. More memorable moments yeah. and or questions of the show. I I guess they're most of mine are like the weird emails we get sometimes. Yes. 
Um, we don't like sh- sh- really share. We don't share all of the feedback that we get because some of it's a little mean or, you know, all podcast, especially women in the podcasting world get reviews or emails that are offensive. I think the most memorable one, no shade to this person, like feel how you want to feel about the books we recommend. That's totally fine. But this has stuck with me is I got an email once about how I recommended erotica like somebody was looking for dark erotica and the book that I recommended had some kind of gray consent stuff in it and the person emailed me and told me that I was like encouraging abuse which is nonsense in my opinion but uh, that one really stuck with me because I had never been accused of encouraging abuse through recommending a work of porn (laughs) before (laughs) so that was that was a head scratcher. I didn't send so the questions. I don't know. There are so many and so many of them are like so oddly specific. Yes. I'm remembering yeah. there was one that somebody wanted. It was something like a book about a nurse that took place within a three block radius in this one oh, New yeah. York neighborhood. And we were like, that's, that's we can't, cool. that's just doesn't exist. <laughs> like we can't yeah. do that. And I'm also remembering how for a little while on the show, like just everybody wanted Neil Gaiman Redelix. Like that was all oh, we man. were getting questions for. <laughs> we got for like a whole year, we got yeah. requests for Circe Redelix yes. also. Yes. We tossed around doing a show about it that was just Redelix for Circe. But now there are so many that like yeah. you don't need help with that probably. No, right. But when Cersei came out, it was quite singular. It yeah. It was like the yeah. only thing. So yeah, I remember I remember that phase. <laughs> okay. Right now we're in the house in the Cerulean Sea. Yes. Is the thing that people want. Or, or Becky Chambers. That's a lot of what we get. Right. All right. Jen, do you want to read our next question? I feel like I've been monopolizing. I would love to. Our next question is from, I don't know who, who says, are there any authors apart from Sarah McLean who you believe would have great recommendations and you would like to host on your show? So for the record, we have had more than just Sarah McLean on. Mm -hmm. We had, gosh, a bunch of people. Ozma came on. Yes. Aliette de Bedard did Mm -hmm. a show. I think Courtney Milan came on. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we've had guests, aside from Sarah, who have also been great. I So I thought about this really hard because it's not just what authors do I love, but what authors do I know read and read widely? Yes. And I'm going with Nalo Hopkinson because I want to hear all about what she has read and loved, regardless of whether or not it fits a question. But I bet she would have. Mm-hmm. books that fit questions. Yeah, I thought about this for a long time, too. And I was using the same criteria, like not just authors who book whose books I like, but authors who I know read widely, which is not surprisingly not as common as you would think it was. And so I picked Tressie McMillan Cotton, mm. who is a sociologist at I think she's a Duke now, but she wasn't local to Richmond. She was working at VCU for a while. She wrote a book of essays called Thick about African-American women and their experience in like beauty and healthcare and all of that. And it's so good. But her Instagram account is so worth a follow because she's constantly talking about other books that she's reading and she reads so widely and she also reads so narrowly. Like it's that Mm. fascinating kind of. And if you subscribe, if you're a subscriber to the New York Times, you can get her newsletter because she just joined their stable. And you absolutely should because she has a portion in every newsletter of what about what she's reading and sometimes it's like a romance and sometimes it's like this very specific novel about the intersection of race and housing you know or or, it's, or not novel but like your work of nonfiction from one of her colleagues or something and she's just got a fascinating brain and then the other person I would like to hear from is Stephen King because he <laughs> blurbs everyone and I would love to know if he actually reads them and because if he does if he actually reads as many books as he blurbs then he's one of the most widely read human beings on the planet and like how do you read that much and also write that much I just have a lot of questions mm, is what I'm saying mm. for Stephen King <laughs> Alrighty. Our next set of questions is from Stephanie. 
Um, and the first one is, what would a great high school English class look like for you? And how would you reconcile a love for reading with the demands of a traditional English language arts education? Hmm. So, yeah, I thought about this a lot because I was trying to remember what the best high school English class I had looked like. Mm-hmm. And there was one teacher who, and we only did this a couple of times in her class, but she did units where there would be a theme, but within that theme, we could pick the book. And, you know, we were still only being presented with like, let's say three options on dystopia is one I'm remembering right now. But it was, you know, like I was allowed, I had some agency. I was allowed to look at the selections and be like, this one, this is the one I'm going to do. And I think she also, if you had like made a case for a book that she had not presented to you, would have let you pick it uh, because that was the kind of teacher that she was. And if I recall correctly, that unit, we also had to like write a thing inspired by the book that we had read and then present that. And like, that was obviously a terrifying experience for a lot of people. Like, you don't want to share your writing with a bunch of other teenagers who are, like, potentially going to mock you mercilessly, just like mm-hmm. anything in high school. But the overall, like, getting to pick a book and then getting to write something that responded to that book was a really cool experience for me. Yeah, I... <laughs> this is probably a controversial opinion, as are many of my opinions. But... <laughs> I think that high school English should not include a lot of assigned reading. Mm. I think that you should let kids read what they want to be reading, which is not all, not always, very rarely the same thing as what we're being assigned, at least not when I was in yeah. high school. It could very well be different now. But when I was in high school, I had to read Anna Karenina. I love Anna Karenina. Anna Karenina is my favorite book. But it was a bonkers assignment you yeah. know, for English. Um, I, I had to read a bunch of Shakespeare. We had a play that we did the whole year on every year. It was a lot of classics. Just a lot of stuff I wasn't ready for. Like, we read Beloved. I was not ready for Beloved. We read The Bell Jar. I was not ready for The Bell Jar. Like, there was no context given for racism or suicidal depression. Like, Mm. it was just, here's a book and analyze the literary elements of it, which is fine. I think that English classes should be, in high school, focused more on writing. Like, Mm. I think kids... Uh, and this is coming from like one of my best friends is an English teacher or she's a librarian now, but she was an English teacher. And this was her big frustration is that she taught sophomore English and the kids would come to her with no writing ability, like no writing skills. Yeah. So I think that that should probably be more of the focus, especially in a digital world where like mm-hmm. most of our communication is writing, texts, emails, all that, you know, and like save the Shakespeare for college for people who care. Because yeah. like, you're not going to inspire a love of reading in a child by making them read Romeo and Juliet over and over. Yours not. So I don't know. That's my hot take. <laughs> let them read what they want and it's probably going to be Marvel <laughs> comics and that's fine <laughs> right that's right that's right okay next question what is your personal criteria for a five star book it's a good question it is a good question my answer to this is does it lay eggs in my brain <laughs> <laughs> Like an alien? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the what I mean by that is, does it like get into my brain and then I can't stop like thinking about it? And sometimes that's in a good way and then sometimes it's in an uncomfortable way. But like for me, like obviously, you know, I care a lot about character. I care little bit less about plot. I care a decent amount about style, but I'm willing to overlook certain things if you do other things. Like, it's it's a mishmash, right, of, like, what I'm looking for in any given book. And so, for me, a book... And I don't rate books with stars anywhere. Mm. in the Like, I, I've, I never will. I never have. Mm. But 
if I'm, you know, what I understand a five-star book to be is a book that, like, I am like, I will never get over this book. Like, this mm-hmm. book has changed me in some, or spoken to me in some fundamental way. And there's a lot of different ways that a writer can do that in my experience. And so, like, if they get into my brain and I can't get them out of it in some fundamental way, like, that's a five-star book for me. Yeah. Does it lay eggs in my brain? <laughs> um, for me, it is about a feeling of epicness, both in the execution and the topic. It does not have to be in the length. Or, and by topic, I don't mean like it has to be about like epic war or anything like that. I mean that it could, just has to feel like it's expansive. Like it's putting, I don't know, spacers in my brain and making it bigger. So for example, like I've already mentioned Anna Karenina. Anna Karenina to me is a five-star read. It is epic in execution. I mean, it's huge and there's so much going on, but it's also epic in topic. Like he is taking on the Russian aristocracy as a institution in that book. But also like Mrs. Dalloway is a five-star read to me Mm. and that is 150 pages, but it is like about war and mental health all told through this one woman throwing a party. Like that originality really matters to me. Um, If I feel haunted by something, I'm never going to think that a retelling of a thing is a five star because you did not invent that story. I think they're valuable and should exist and need to become mm. more seriously realized, you know, but none of those are going to be five stars to me because they don't feel like new ideas or new takes on the human experience. They're a take on a take on the human experience. Mm. Again, valuable and fine, but not a five star. And I think that this whole conversation is really fascinating because it really shows the subjectivity of mm-hmm. of book criticism or book ratings and how like the book, right? The whole concept of book, right? Was like, there is no objectivity in book opinions. The idea that a book reviewer saying this book is five stars, therefore it is objectively five stars, is nonsense. And that's why we started Book Riot, to let people who were not allowed to have opinions about book publicly have them, which I think has just continued to kind of tear down that idea that there's any kind of objectivity in book preferences because it's such an amalgamation of your personal preferences, your mm-hmm. personal history, and marketing. Like it's just yep. all of these things. Um, should we do another ad break? I didn't yeah, forget this do, time. <laughs> let's do another ad break. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal. Join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. 
No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Uh, I'll read the next question. Okay. So this is the third one from Stephanie who says, I know you're both very professional and respectful of authors and their work. I'm just laughing a little bit because like Amanda, I don't know that you ID is very professional when it comes to this kind of thing. Not not around authors, certainly. No. More of like a ding dong. <laughs> but anyway, the question continues. Would you break bad and pan any books, say who slash what you avoid when reading or share which books you think are overrated? Amanda. Go, go. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't really have a problem doing this. I guess we don't do it much on the show because no. we're, we're not, it's, that would be like an anti-pattern for what the show is. But uh, I don't read living men who are accused of sexual assault. It's like I, if I, I don't read Sherman Alexi. I don't, you know, like the, I just don't. I take them off of my shelves. I take them off of my to be read list. I'm not saying that you have to. This is just what I do. Um, and I don't read anyone who I know is going to use their book profits for things that are evil, like Orson Scott Card, who uses his profits to try to destroy the lives of LGBTQ people. That's pretty much it. I mean, outside of that, who or what I avoid when reading, I don't, we've talked about this kind of thing before, but I don't love horror. And I don't love bad things happening to children. I just recently stopped reading books where bad things happen to young girls, like mm. home mysteries, that are built around bad things happening to pretty young white women. I'm just tired of that yeah. story. Um, so I don't read that anymore. Maybe I will in the future. I don't know. I'm just over it, you know. And I think that's pretty much it. Books that you think are overrated. Um, I don't know that this is really a thing for me because people like what they like. And right. I'm not, I don't, I try not to yuck other people's yum unless like Orson Scott Card, I think they're evil. <laughs> in which case <laughs> I will yuck your yum. Stop reading Orson Scott Card. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of similar uh, feelings to Amanda in terms of, yeah, what I'm not picking up. But I also, currently anyway, until we're over, more over the gender binary, I am mm -hmm. not picking up books that have speculative gendered premises. Mm. So, like, suddenly all the women this or all the mm -hmm. men that. Like, I'm not... I just because unless I know for sure that that author is not erasing the existence of non-binary or trans or genderqueer, two-spirit, et cetera, folks, like I'm I just it's not I don't find it interesting. Mm -hmm. And I I also find it extremely reductive because so few of these people actually grapple like if you're going to say all this gender do X and you're basing it on biology, then you better come with the understanding that biology is also wibbly wobbly and not <laughs> it's not 
it's again, it's not on or off. It's not mm-hmm. like it's it just doesn't it like scientifically doesn't work that way. And so I find it annoying and reductive and also damaging because it erases all of these populations. So I that is a thing I am avoiding generally as a reader. I, I'm not saying mm-hmm. they're bad or wrong. I'm just saying I'm not interested. Yeah, they feel like thought experiments for questions that we've already answered and moved on from. Like we don't need we don't really need that now. Yeah. And they they do happen in cycles. Daniel Lavery mm-hmm. wrote this really hilarious satirical newsletter about how it's like every two years we get another crop of them and like it's true. Yeah. We do. Uh so I would like us to move on from that and like mm-hmm. develop more interesting thought experiments, please and thank you. <laughs> All righty. Let's see. Who is next? Laura. Laura says, I was wondering if you have any advice about how to keep track of upcoming releases for specific authors. I've been an insider subscriber for a while and while, and love the new release index to bits for keeping abreast of a wide range of books that are upcoming, but I have a list of 10 to 20 authors for whom I always want to know what they have coming out. I'm subscribed to a lot of their newsletters, but that's unwieldy. I used to use Fict Fact to keep track of individual authors' new releases. Is there anything else like that out there? Both Goodreads and Library Thing do a pretty good job with lists of books in a series, but I haven't come across anything that duplicates what Fict Fact did for tracking what's coming out um i get a newsletter from goodreads every month that's like here are the new releases from authors you've already read that are coming out this month it's not like super forward facing and i don't know if every subscriber i don't know how i got on on that newsletter (laughs) list honestly i don't know (laughs) but i got it and i'm on it and so every like i just got it this morning for october for all the books that i've listed as read if any of those authors have new books coming out it's in this list that Goodreads has sent me. So that's might be a thing that you could sign up for. And then I was thinking NetGalley or Edelweiss maybe, but I can't think of anything else outside of the new release index. Genji, can you think of anything else? Yeah, the, as far as I'm aware, this does not exist in a centralized way. I think certain publishers have like signed up to hear more about these mm-hmm. authors' releases. But like you said, you can sign up for their newsletters and then you're on a billion newsletters and that does indeed get unwieldy. I think Edelweiss is a great idea. Anybody can mm-hmm. make an account there. You won't necessarily get approved for early reader copies. But what you can do is set up filters on Edelweiss. I'm not sure you can set them up by author. But if you could, that would be like your go-to because most publishers send their upcoming release catalogs to Edelweiss, if nothing else. And uh, you probably could set up some good filters to to keep you apprised of what's coming mm-hmm. in the future. But yeah, there's no there's no like super publicly available. Amanda, is this a, a future Book Riot project? Perhaps we should put this in the think hole. <laughs> well, there's. I can't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Secrets. We have secrets. Yeah. We'll uh, see. Keep an eye out. <laughs> All right. Our next question is from Sybil, who is asking me specifically, would I rather never read another fantasy book again or never read another science fiction book again? Sybil, this is a cruel question. Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> I... Don't know. Would I rather never read another fantasy or another sci-fi? This is this is hard. I if I'm just going based on my reading patterns, I have discovered through tracking my reading that I tend to read slightly more fantasy than sci-fi at at least, if not significantly more, depending on the year. And I don't know why that is. I love science fiction. Like some of my absolute all-time favorite books are science fiction, and I read a lot of it. But somehow, mm-hmm. I think it's maybe to do with growing up. I fantasy was more accessible to me early on than sci-fi was, so that could be part of it. So if I'm like going on past reading, I guess I would have to say fantasy, but I like hesitate because 
the thinkiness of sci-fi and the like future mm. thought experimenty part of sci-fi is so interesting to me that it's very hard. But okay, so if I'm if I'm playing the game and I'm you're making me pick, I will say never another sci-fi over never another fantasy. Okay, her question for me was would you rather only reread the books that you've already read for the rest of your life or only read books that are chosen for you by a randomizing algorithm and you only get to choose new books twice a week? Um the latter, 100%. I don't mean, I don't, I don't, I don't trust, I don't reread often. I reread Anna Corinne and I, why do I keep talking about Anna Corinne? I like reread it every five or six years, but somehow it's all I'm talking about today. I reread Anna Karenina quite a bit. I reread The Great Gatsby with some frequency. I've been wanting to reread Jane Austen here, uh, mm-hmm. but just haven't gotten around. I just don't do a lot of rereading. And yeah, it's a, you know, again, I'm going to talk about the Enneagram. I have a really strong seven wing, which means that I'm kind of a bit of a goldfish with my attention span. So once I've done a thing, I don't want to do it again. Like I don't ever travel to the same place twice I'm because I've done it. So like, why would I go back there? Yeah. So randomizing, randomizing algorithms sounds like a terrifying adventure. <laughs> so probably that. All right. Her next question was, how do you select your next books to read or organize your TBR between library holds, endless Goodreads TBR and physical books, Kindle books? It's an overwhelming number of good books. This is from Christine. Jen? (laughs) Uh, Well, it's partly what get books questions are on the agenda for next week. What do I have to read for SFF? Yeah. Am I guesting on another podcast? Like I just recorded an episode of Hey YA. So I did a little bit of reading for that. Uh, And then after that, it is what pops up from my library holds, because Mm -hmm. I have a long rotating list of library holds, and those are more time sensitive. Although I do love that Libby now has a like, deliver this later feature. Like, give me, I need another five days. Like, I cannot get to you yet. Give me another five days. But I often will be like, oh, I do actually want to read that right now. And then, yeah, what's sort of like lying around my house been waiting for me to pick it up for a thousand years? It is not organized, I guess is what I'm telling you. It is extremely Mm -hmm. dictated by what I need to read for work and then what is literally put in front of my face by the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Similar. I am often selecting my next books based on what get booked questions we've gotten. My TBR is not organized in any way. I have physical books. Uh, fewer since COVID because with supply chain issues and factories shutting down, most publishers stopped sending out physical galleys. And I used that opportunity to tell them to stop sending them to me ever. <laughs> so I can just go select the the digital copies that I want. So I don't have a ton of physical books lying around anymore or physical books that I haven't read yet lying around anymore. So yeah, it's just like Jen said, it's a combination of what comes in from my library holds. I don't have a Goodreads TBR But what I do for new releases, this might be more interesting to you, is I go to the new release index, which is available to Bookwrite Insiders, about once a month. And I look at what's coming out in the next three to four months. And then I will get whatever looks interesting on Edelweiss and then pick whatever strikes my fancy out of that batch. So once every two or three weeks, I'm picking a new book from like a new advanced copy of something that I found on the new release index. That's as organized as it gets, really. It's very ad hoc. Let's see. Next question is, I know you have book spreadsheets for the show, but personally, do you have a book of books? I started one after reading My Life with Bob by Pamela Paul. Amanda, you're going to have to explain this question to me. Yeah. Okay. I have read this book. Pamela Paul is the um, editor, editor in chief. I don't know what her title is of the New York Review of Books. And she wrote a book called My Life with Bob, which is her book of books. So it's like a memoir told through her reading journal. 
so no, I do not have a book of books. I have a spreadsheet. <laughs> I feel like her, she's like writing what she has read and then like reflections about it. And I am not doing any of that. So I have a spreadsheet that I've kept for like a decade, really since I started working at Book Riot, that tracks the title genre and then whatever I'm focusing on that year. So like I want to read more women. I want to read more people of color, whatever the thing is that I've or like people, authors outside of the US. And so I also have a Goodreads account that I have keep no, I, it's totally private. I don't friend people. I'm only using it for the show. I use it to keep track of what I've read and then like categories of frequent questions we get. So like mm. if some, if, it, if the book takes place in Russia, I will shelve it under Russia so that when people ask me for books for Russia, I have a whole section there um, or books about books or whatever. Like I use it for organizing this part of my job. But I have no like reflectively journal-y type process. It's just a spreadsheet. <laughs> Yeah, I had one when I was a teenager, and I still have it somewhere in the house where I would write like little like, you know, things after I finished a book. But for the last, I want to say my spreadsheet starts in like 2014 or 2013. So for the last however many years that is eight, uh, I have I've had my own personal spreadsheet. And that's how I know what I've read. Yeah. <laughs> I used to try to put notes in, like I had a field for like a mini review and I just don't do it. I just don't, mm-hmm. I don't do it. I think I, I think I'm reading too, this is going to sound weird. I read it fast and then I'm on to the next book. And while it sounds like it probably would be a good practice for me to adopt to like sit and think about it. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm just like, yep, I read mm-hmm. this next one. Yeah, same. So, yeah. Um, I think we have time for these Next two. Gotcha. Short. Okay, our last question from Grace is favorite podcasts? Question mark. Always a gap after I marathon get booked and the Book Riot podcast. You don't listen to podcasts, do you? <laughs> this is my dirty secret. I don't <laughs> process audio only information very well. So mm-hmm. I don't audiobook and I don't listen to podcasts just because I, I just can't absorb it. Like I, I I'm like talk about goldfish brain. I will yeah. I will be trying and then immediately I'm distracted by something else. The only time I successfully listened to a whole audiobook was when I was on a plane and it was Alyssa Cole. And I've already told that story on this show, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> about skipping the sex scenes because I was so afraid that my seatmates could hear through my headphones what, was, what I was listening to. So, But I was literally trapped on a plane. There was nothing else to do. You know what I mean? Like I was mm-hmm. just sitting there staring. So like that is the only time I have successfully absorbed audio information. I will say that being said, on road trips, my partner will often put on wait, wait, don't tell me, especially when Mm. we're stuck in traffic. And like, that's fun. I enjoy that, especially when they have guests that I know. I'm like, oh, I know that comedian or person. So (laughs) that I like, I guess that's my answer. But that's a super basic answer. I'm aware. (laughs) So Um, so, so my dirty little secret, I guess, version of this answer is that I don't listen to other book shows. I, I, sometimes I will listen to The Reading Women, which is great. They're doing great work on that podcast. Kendra, um, who is one, one of the main hosts of that show, is a contributing editor here at Book Riot. And she's been running that, that show for years. And it is so great. But I can't take in more book coverage, you know, yeah. like my brain is I am saturated, so I can't take in anymore. But I mean, I'll tell you, <laughs> my my I listen to a lot of podcasts, and they're mostly about my interests that no one here probably cares about. So like, I listen to a lot of political podcasts. My favorites of those are the 538 podcast, um, Left, Right and Center, which is exactly what it sounds like. The host is a moderate and they bring on a leftist and a conservative to talk about whatever thing that they're talking about. 
and then Pantsuit Politics, which used to be a Democrat and a Republican who were best friends who had political conversations every week. But since the Trump administration, the Republican has become a Democrat. So now it's just two angry Democrat ladies talking about politics, which I love. And then I also listen to like a lot of fitness or wellnessy kind of st- like literally about barbells and weightlifting, which I don't think anyone's care about. Uh, so I'm going to skip that. I'm looking at my app right now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe another one that y'all might like is Office Ladies. This is the one that I save for my runs. Office Ladies is Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey, who played Pam and Angela on The Office, rewatching every episode of The Office and like telling behind the scenes funny stories about it. They're about an hour long. So each so they're like a perfect amount of time for me to do a warm up, run a 5k and then be done. (laughs) And so that's what I listen to in my runs. Yeah, there's there are a lot more. But I, you know, DM me if you want a longer list, because I don't think anybody cares about that stuff. (laughs) Um, Okay, and then our last question for today, we have three more pages, so we will definitely do another episode, um, is the entire podcast is about you recommending books for others, but what about you? What is the most memorable book book recommendation you've ever had? This is from Chris. What a great question. What is your most memorable book recommendation? Yeah, this is a really great question. So the one that popped into my head when I read this question, and let's be sure I've been read I've recommended a ton of books in my life so this is just this is just one and also sort of the most recent one is I was doing cross stitches to help fundraise for I don't even remember what the cause was at this point it might have been ICE defund the ICE sort of situations or help helping with migrants at the border. But I was like, if you show me a receipt, I will make you a cross stitch. It's one of these three patterns, like, you know, yes, just to I help. Have en- one, it's behind me. Uh, is the John yeah. Lewis quote. Yeah. Just to help encourage, you know, people to do the thing. So Celeste Ng <laughs> saw this and requested one. And I was like, obviously, Celeste Ng, I will make you a cross stitch. And... <laughs> sent me as a thank you, which was so unnecessary, a book, which was uh, The Fortunes by Peter Ho Davies. And I had never read Davies before. And I was like, well, if Celeste Ng sent me this book, I obviously am required by law to read it. And I read it and it was amazing. And I've recommended it a bunch of times on the show. So that was a recommendation that has like kept on giving, as Mm. it were. And that was just like a very cool experience for me as well. So... Shout out to Celeste. (laughs) My most memorable book recommendation was from Rebecca, and it changed the course of my entire life. So I only read classics. This is when I was blogging Dead White Guys. I really I only read the classics and I applied for a job at the bookstore, as I said earlier, the indie bookstore. And Kelly, who is the owner of the bookstore, The Fountain, which is in Richmond, if you are ever in town, go visit told me she knew who I was and knew my blog. And during the interview, she was like, you can work here, but you have got to read books by people who are alive because people (laughs) will ask you for those. And that's most of what we sell. So like you have got to change this. And I was like, ooh, got it. (laughs) And I went to Rebecca, who I think was working at Starbucks at the time. And I like went to her Starbucks in the middle of her shift and was like, help me. (laughs) Like, what do I read? I don't know. Because she was blogging um, at The Book Lady and only didn't read any classics, only read books by living contemporary authors. And she recommended The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shaban because she said it was the most classic-y modern book that she'd ever read. Mm. And so that's what I did. I went and I read The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay and I got the job at the indie bookstore. And I started reading Living Authors, which helped get me the job that I have now. <laughs> and it is the book that I recommend to people who are only classics readers who want to start getting into contemporary literary fiction. 
So yeah, that that's it. And that's our show for right now. That's a good note to end on. Yeah, yeah. We definitely have enough for another, maybe two. We'll only do one. It'll be fine. We'll be faster next time. (laughs) Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. This is so much fun to do. And it is nice to have a break from recommending books for a few weeks. Um, Thank you so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Of course, thank all y'all for listening. Uh, You can find more of our recs uh, at bookriot.com and our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. You can leave us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsor for sponsoring the show. And you can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And Jen, I think it's still on hiatus, but we'll come back to some places. (laughs) At some point, I will come back to social media. And if you feel like waiting, on Twitter and Tumblr, I am at Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And on Instagram, I am Jen IRL. And we will be back next week with part two. 